many of us find ourselves as adults trying to figure out what exactly it is we're feeling, and this doesn't come naturally to us. But that's okay because we can learn it. We can learn how to identify and name our emotions. We can learn the language of emotions so we can talk about what we're feeling. We can learn how to make sense of what's happening in our lives. We can learn how to release our emotions from our bodies. And we can most certainly learn how to share what it is we're feeling with each other. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Many of us grew up in homes where we were raised to believe that emotions were not important, and if anything, they just got in the way. They got in the way of how we were supposed to behave, which means we were never taught how to properly identify and name the emotions we were feeling, where we were feeling it in our bodies, how to release and move through our emotions in a healthy way. And we most definitely were not taught how to communicate what we were feeling. We were told things like, stop being so sensitive, you're so dramatic, stop your crying, just put on a happy face, and the list goes on and on. So we did our best to keep our emotions inside. We built emotional walls so no one could see our vulnerable parts, so no one could see the parts of ourselves that we felt ashamed of. We hid the things we didn't want others to see. We built walls to keep others out and keep ourselves in. We believed that vulnerability was a weakness. Then we grew up and we went out into the world and our culture told us that there were very few places where we could actually be emotional and tons of places where we couldn't or shouldn't show our emotions, like when we're at work. The world affirmed to us that in order to succeed, we would have to suck it up and keep it all inside. This isn't the time or the place. And the sooner we could get over our grief, our anger, our heartbreak, or disappointment, the better. Unfortunately, this didn't work. This still doesn't work. Antonio Damasio, a Portuguese-American neuroscientist, said it best. He said, we are not thinking machines that feel. Rather, we are feeling machines who think. I love this. We are feeling machines who think. So now, many of us find ourselves as adults trying to figure out what exactly it is we're feeling, and this doesn't come naturally to us. But that's okay, because we can learn it. We can learn how to identify and name our emotions. We can learn the language of emotions so we can talk about what we're feeling. We can learn how to make sense of what's happening in our lives. We can learn how to release our emotions from our bodies. And we can most certainly learn how to share what it is we're feeling with each other. That's what this podcast is all about. It's a place to learn the language, to expand our vocabulary, all the way up to 87 emotions and experiences, thanks to Brene Brown. This podcast is a place to see 
what we've gotten right and what we've gotten wrong all these years. For instance, the majority of us, myself included, have totally mixed up the words jealousy and envy. And we will use Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, as our roadmap, a roadmap to a new understanding. And once we understand the language, then we're going to see how it shows up in our lives. We will learn how we can move through the emotions without bypassing them or stuffing them down so they get stuck in our bodies. We will learn how to heal ourselves. On the podcast, there will be experts from all different modalities to help us understand the connection between our bodies and our emotions. We will learn how to release emotions through sound, healing, yoga, meditation, writing, therapy, and so much more. And we are going to learn my newest and most absolute favorite way to release old stuck emotions from the body through just the use of the breath. I have recently had two breathwork sessions and they have been two of the biggest emotional releases I've ever experienced. It's truly incredible. And there will be lots of stories, tons of real life stories. I believe deeply in the power of storytelling. So I will share my stories and others will share their stories. Shame to me might look like my struggle with infertility and shame to someone else might look like their struggle with addiction. I will be here to guide you and to walk alongside you as I too continue to deepen my own knowledge of my emotions. I will be here to remind you of what you already know but maybe have forgotten. This work is truly never-ending. Sorry. There's no quick fix, no magic pill. But the good news is, the more we put into practice releasing emotions from our bodies, the easier it will become. A little bit about me. I am a Gemini sun with an Aquarius rising and a Scorpio moon, which basically means I'm deep and emotional. I love to communicate. Just ask my husband. And I am not afraid to question the status quo. And for those of you who love human design as much as I do, I am a 5-1 manifesting generator with a, you guessed it, an emotional authority. Basically, I am an emotional person and always have been. However, I grew up in a family that didn't talk a lot about feelings the kind of family that would make jokes about our inability to connect with our emotions. And if by chance an emotion did find its way in, you better get over it and get back to normal. The sooner the better. By the time I was five years old, I had already experienced our home burning down, losing everything, moving, and then my dad unexpectedly dying. This started me on my journey of having huge emotions most of which I did not understand, and having no one to talk about them to, and definitely not knowing how to release them from my body. So eventually they began to come out sideways and came out in not so healthy ways. I craved control. And when I couldn't control the outside world, I controlled my body, dabbling with an eating disorder in middle school I became a perfectionist, an overachiever trying to fill a void inside of myself that was impossible to fill, so I just kept performing. I created the story that I couldn't rely on anyone but myself, that I had to do it all. I became angry at my mom and I blamed her for so much, 
even though I now know and understand that she was doing the best she could with the tools she had. Just like I believe that about everyone. Everyone is truly doing the best they can, and sometimes their tools aren't enough. Where my mom couldn't help me herself, she was great at enlisting others to help me. I was the only one in our family to go to therapy, which I still love to this day. And when a dear friend of mine died of cancer when we were 16, my mom called our minister to sit down and talk with me. What I wanted most was to talk to her, but that wasn't what we did in our family. And I'm deeply grateful that she helped me to look elsewhere for the emotional support that I so needed and that she couldn't give me. Things were not normalized or discussed openly in our home. So as I grew up, all the fears and questions I had about my body and sexuality, they weren't discussed. I can remember my mom coming into my room, giving me some sort of book about sex, and that was that. We didn't discuss money, mental health, and the struggles of our extended family members were not openly talked about. I was told over and over again, I'll tell you sometime when you're older. And as Brene Brown says, for children, it's easy for everything to become a source of shame when nothing is normalized. So the shame began to pile up inside of me. I loved my time at school and often found myself in positions of leadership. I began to see that in places other than my home, my vulnerability was actually not a weakness, but was something that drew people closer to me. And I had a deep empathy for others that I think I may have been born with and I think came from losing my dad so young. I could feel other people's pain and hurt. I began to reach out and connect with others in pain. I found that I could not only hold that space for them, but loved being able to do so. I loved deep conversations. I struggled with light conversation. Going deep has always come more easily to me than skimming the surface. But I still struggled. In college, after a particularly challenging breakup, I began to learn that there were ways of numbing my pain, of numbing my emotions. I went out and I bought my first bowl and turned to weed to help me not feel all the feelings so intensely. In Alice of the Heart, Brene writes, it's awful that the same substances that take the edge off anxiety and pain also dull our sense of observation. She goes on to say that I simultaneously numbed my pain and lost track of my own power. We become so terrified of feeling pain, so we engage in behaviors that become a magnet for more pain. We run from anger and grief straight into the arms of fear, perfectionism, and the desperate need for control. And that is exactly what I did. More pain was added. The pain of sexual trauma which led me to become even more disconnected from my body and a further reliance on weed, alcohol, perfectionism, and control for the next year of my life. However, my deep desire to always be in control won out over the possibility of addiction. I hated not feeling in total control, so I could only drink or smoke close to that edge. The few times I crossed that line prevented me from going there again. It wasn't until I experienced a massive medical trauma at age 22 when things would dramatically change my life forever. 
I promise to go into much, much more detail in this story in a further episode, but the Cliff Notes version is, I was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease and I was operated on under that misdiagnosis. When I woke up from surgery, the surgeon said that I actually didn't have Crohn's disease and that he only took a small portion, less than a foot of my small intestines, to be tested. Well, something wasn't adding up. (laughs) I spent the next year in and out of hospitals, unable to keep any food in my system and was wasting away less than 100 pounds. I had lost most of my hair. I was skirting so close to the edge of death. And then I finally went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota after my lung collapsed. And it took me flying across the entire country for someone to finally tell me what was going on with my body. It turns out that the surgeon the doctors, the other nurses, they had lied about what was removed. And in actuality, I had lost four and a half feet of my small intestines, my appendix, the ileocecal valve, and five lymph nodes, which now made so much sense as to why I was so sick. And at the Mayo Clinic, I was given a second chance. With the proper medication, I was able to start over, albeit with a very restricted diet which I still have to have to this day, and definitely no drinking or smoking, but I was able to begin again. Years later, I would find myself in therapy, talking about this moment in time, and as I recounted the story to the therapist, the therapist stopped me and she said, can you tell me any emotions you were feeling then? I hadn't even noticed it at the time, but I had only been talking about how I thought about the experience, not how I felt. It would take me a long time to be able to start to connect the dots of the emotions. This is what happens when we experience trauma. It's a way of protecting ourselves by not connecting ourselves with the emotions of how we felt. I eventually started to do the work to understand myself better, to understand my emotions. I started to see that there were walls I had built to protect myself. And with those walls up, I couldn't even love my husband fully. I could only go as far as the walls would let me. Because the truth is, our connection with others can only go as deep as our connection with ourselves. I now choose to feel. To not bypass, stuff, or numb my emotions, but to really feel them. And once they've been fully felt and acknowledged, then I do the work to release them from my body. This is a journey for me. It's four steps forward, two steps back. This work has allowed me to deepen my relationship with myself and with others. It has given me the courage to be able to have the hard, uncomfortable conversations. And when I know better, I do better. I've spent the last nine years learning about my emotions, learning about my body and how it's connected to it all. Learning yoga and meditation have changed my life for the better. But I'm going to tell you, this is hard work. I know that for me, on the way to a better, a more wholehearted life, a lot of things got stirred up. I get it. Growth can be scary. Transformation can be scary because it means we are going to have to leave parts of ourselves behind, relationships that are no longer working behind, old beliefs and patterns that have been with us since childhood behind. But I'm here to tell you that it's worth it. 
because on the other side of that transformation lives a truer, more beautiful version of yourself. If your relationship can make it through to the other side of the really difficult conversations, it will be stronger, better, and truer. And I can say this because this work almost cost me my marriage. If it wasn't for my husband's willingness to grow with me, I can say for certain we wouldn't be married. And I can tell you also that not everyone's going to change with you. And that's going to require boundaries and letting go. The one thing that I hold on to at this point in my life is that if I am going to disappoint someone, I would rather it be me disappointing someone else than letting me disappoint myself. Brene says when we stop numbing and start feeling and learning again, we have to reevaluate everything, especially how to choose loving ourselves over making other people comfortable. I'm committed to learning. I will and you will get things wrong along the way, and it's okay as long as we keep going. I'm sure I will get things wrong on this podcast, but I'm not going to let the old perfectionist side of me stop me from showing up, trying something new, creating, and sharing. I will do my very best to share the truest version of what I know to be true in this moment, and when I know better, I will give myself permission to change my mind and to say so. I want to tell you a little bit about Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown and how Brene came into my life, my world. The first time I saw Brene Brown was in 2013 when I saw her on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. And 2013 was a big year for me. It was the year I discovered yoga and meditation. It completely, I changed my diet and lifestyle. It was the year I decided to be all in on my growth journey. So that moment of being introduced to Brene's work was a game changer. I immediately bought her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, and signed up for her online course through Oprah. After that, I began to read and reread every book of hers, and when I started leading retreats, it was her work that guided me. In that online course in 2013, Brene had us draw a heart on a piece of paper. And inside of that heart, we were to write the names of the people who belong in our innermost heart. Think of this as like our inner, inner circle. These are the people that you can go to when you are your messiest, most broken, emotional self. This is when you are at your rock bottom. These are the people you can go to. And they will not judge you and they will not offer sympathy, but will offer you empathy and compassion. And if you have three or four people's names in your heart, then you're doing great. You are lucky. And recently, of course, no coincidence, I found my heart from 2013. It was in a journal that I recently stumbled upon. And I finally understood something. Some of my biggest struggles the last nine years were all because I had put people in my heart that didn't belong there. This doesn't mean that I don't still love them and I don't still have them in my lives. It's just they didn't belong in that innermost heart. They are the people you think you should have in your heart. And for me, I kept trying to make it work in so many different ways. I wanted so badly for it to be them. But the truth is, I don't feel safe with them or not judged by them. The people I would put in my heart now are different from 2013. 
The people in my heart now are the people I can go to who can go just as deep with their emotions and their vulnerability as I can. We will have people fit all sorts of different needs and roles in our lives. And we need to stop trying to make one person fit all of our needs. There will be people you can go to when you need help moving or you need to borrow money from or watch your kids. Or in my case, watch my dog. Some people will be there to physically support you, mentally support you, spiritually support you. And then there will be people who can emotionally support you. When you are in your emotional turmoil, when you are on your knees at rock bottom, be sure that you call on these people, the people in your innermost heart. In one of my most recent emotional rock bottoms, my BFF told me to stop going to the hardware store for milk. And this saying has changed my life. I no longer go to the hardware store for milk. If I need emotional support, I go to someone who can emotionally support me and I don't go anywhere else. And that's freedom. And that freedom, it's not just for me, but it's also for those people that I was creating expectations around that couldn't ever possibly meet those expectations. And most of the time, they weren't even aware that I had these expectations of them. These boundaries have allowed me to keep people in my life who I really love and want in my life, but I cannot share my emotions with. So when Atlas of the Heart came out, I knew it was going to be good. What I didn't know, that this was the book I'd been waiting my entire life for. This book truly became a roadmap for me, a compass. It completely expanded my knowledge of the emotions. It forced me to learn, relearn, and unlearn things I already thought I knew. It gave me the language for what I was feeling and then the courage to be able to share more articulately what I was feeling. I knew in my heart that it wasn't just me who needed this book, but everyone needs it, and I still very much believe this. So I started a book study, a sort of study group to go through the book together with, and more people wanted to join, so I started another group, and we went through it emotion by emotion. Going through it in a group helped us to go deeper into the information to understand the emotions from other people's points of view. If this interests you, I will be starting up another book study in the next few weeks. I'll put a link in the show notes. And about four weeks into our eight-week journey, I realized that I wanted to go further and deeper and that I wanted to really integrate this work because I am somebody who has a ton of self-help books and books are just books if we don't actually find ways to actually put them into practice in our own lives. So I created an online course called The Emotional Expedition. And for the next eight weeks, we went really deep into about 20 of the 87 emotions from Atlas of the Heart. I was able to use my expertise in yoga, meditation, and other modalities to help us integrate. We danced, shared, laughed, cried, did yoga, meditated, and learned how to breathe again. We learned how to take this knowledge, this information, and apply it in our lives. It was beautiful. And out of that place, this podcast was born. The emotional journey, combining knowledge, integration, body, releasing, and ultimately healing. It's all about transformation.
And I would love to share a few things, just a few things from Atlas of the Heart that have completely blown my mind. And of course, we are going to go much deeper into this over these next podcast episodes. The connection between how people think, behave, and feel. Once we can master this connection, then we truly understand everything. Our connection with other people is only as solid and deep as our connection to ourselves. In order for me to be connected to you, I have to know who I am and I have to be connected to myself. And you're not going to believe this one. If you were to touch a hot burner on the stove, the pain centers that light up in your brain are the exact same pain centers that light up if you feel socially excluded, rejected, or isolated. We neurobiologically process emotional pain in the same way we process physical pain. Let me say that again. Emotional pain and physical pain show up in the brain the exact same way. And I love this fact from Atlas of the Heart. Ten years ago, uh, Brene surveyed about 7,000 people, and she had them write down the names of emotions that they could recognize as they were experiencing them. So it wasn't writing down a list of emotions that you know the names of. It was ones that you can recognize while you're experiencing them in your body. And the average number was three, happy, sad, and angry. This is a problem. (laughs) Trying to stuff all of our emotions into three boxes, happy, sad, or angry, not good. There's a huge difference between being sad when what you're really feeling is grief or disappointed or disconnected. And are you familiar with the saying, hurt people hurt people? Well, it's true, and I now understand that people will do almost anything to avoid feeling pain, including causing pain to others, right? Hurt people hurt people, and abusing power. And that very few people can actually handle being held accountable for causing hurt without rationalizing, blaming, or shutting down. And write this one down. (laughs) This is probably the lesson that I have had to learn the most over and over again. And it is, I am not responsible for other people's emotions. I am not responsible for other people's emotions. This one has taken me 39 years to learn and unlearn and relearn again. And when I see my husband in a bad mood, my body actually has like a visceral reaction. I hate it. I get so uncomfortable seeing him be mad or sad or hurt or disappointed. And I, like many women, just want to swoop in and fix his problems. And I now have trained myself that when I feel this uncomfortable feeling in my body to remind myself that I am not responsible for his experience of life and I am not responsible for his emotions. Ding, ding, ding. So why does the language matter? Why is the language so important? Well, it matters because we are emotional beings and we make decisions based on our emotions. But somehow by the time we become adults, we know very little about our emotions and we have very little language to express what we're feeling, how to actually ask for help, and to ask for what we need. 
indefinitely, we don't know how to be able to talk about what's happening in our bodies. We are so limited. Most of us feel disconnected. We feel disconnected from ourselves, from each other, and from our bodies. And it's actually been proven that when we name an experience, it doesn't give the experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and meaning. This one's huge. So for some of us that are really afraid to look at our grief, for example, it actually helps us to name it and to understand it. It takes, it doesn't give it more power, right? It actually helps us have the power of understanding and meaning. And Susan David, she was highlighted in Brene's book, Atlas of the Heart. And in her book, Emotional Agility, she talks about emotional granularity, which is the skill set that allows us to understand our difficult experiences. She says words matter. And when we use accurate labels to describe how it is we're feeling, we're able to transform what feels like a murky experience into something with boundaries and a name. There's a world of difference between stress and feeling disappointed and feeling unsupported. She then goes on to say that when we default to this concept of forced false positive, which is like when we say good vibes only or just be positive, what we're really saying is that my comfort is more important than your reality. And this stops us from understanding what the other person is actually experiencing. Language allows us to make sense of what we experience. It doesn't just communicate to others what we're feeling, but it also changes the shape and the effect and the emotion of what we're feeling. So when we mislabel things, it changes our experience of them. Our understanding of our own and others' emotions is shaped by how we perceive, categorize, and describe emotional experiences And these interpretations rely heavily on language. I've been working for a while now on integrating this knowledge into my life. And because of my own ability to recognize and process my emotions, it has allowed me to be able to totally be present for other people's big emotions. This past Father's Day, I dropped off flowers and visited a dear friend who was experiencing her first Father's Day without her dad. I can only wholeheartedly do these kind of things because my own of my own understanding of my emotions. Yes, I stumble and I fall a lot when I try to put what I learn into practice, but I still believe it's worth it. I can get it wrong a lot, and I have become more and more comfortable with not only getting it wrong, but for leaning in to understand in these moments. And spoiler alert, here is my biggest takeaway from reading Atlas of the Heart. I totally thought that reading this book was going to make me understand others better, which it does in many ways, but what really surprised me was kind of the opposite, which is we cannot assume what others are feeling. I'm going to say that again. So we can't assume what others are feeling, not even a little bit. For example, when we look at someone and we label them as angry, It possibly could be anger, but it also could be 27 other emotions that show up with anger. It's much easier for someone to say, I'm angry or I'm pissed off than it is to say, I'm feeling shame, I'm grieving, I'm disappointed. Now let's talk a little bit about the body. So one of my deepest beliefs that I feel like I've just known forever 
is that we store trauma in the body. We store emotions in the body. And if we don't release it and get it out of the body, it will show up in unexpected and undesirable ways. For some, it shows up in the form of disease. I 100% wholeheartedly believe that stuck emotions can show up as chronic pain or illness. I've seen it myself and in so many others. And I've seen people release the stuck emotions from their bodies and their chronic pain completely disappears. Sigmund Freud said, unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. And what I know to be true is that they will show up when you least desire them to. I once hysterically cried over a tree, but it was really grief over my dad. And I promised to tell that story in the grief episode. So basically, you have to feel it to heal it. And the good news is we can help release these stored emotions. And I will dive deep into this in episode two, which is all about stress and overwhelm and how to complete the stress cycle so stress doesn't get stuck in the body. Have you ever heard of cellular memory? So an example of cellular memory is when a heart transplant patient gets a new heart, so gets someone else's heart, and then they start to experience that other person's memories, likes, and dislikes. They may have memories of places that they've never been to. They may start to like food or music they've never liked before, and even their handwriting can change to the style of handwriting the person whose heart they now have. This is for real. The body stores memories. So the body can store memories, it can store trauma, it can store emotions, and that's why we have to do this work of healing and releasing these trapped emotions. And some final thoughts and intentions for this podcast. I recently was listening to um, Viola Davis's book, and oh, such a good book, Finding Me, and I loved listening to it on Audible because it's her sharing it, and it just made me connect even deeper with it. And she was on Oprah. She had a Netflix special about her book, and on the Oprah special, she mentioned this quote from Joseph Campbell, and it is, when you go down the path of transformation, you are going to see all the parts of yourself you don't want to see. And when you meet that self, you can stay there and be swallowed, or you can move on. I want to move on. It's my prayer and my intention that this podcast becomes a place of transformation. I'm even diffusing um, Young Living Essential Oil of transformation as I record this, that's how much I want it to be infused in this podcast. I will share and others will share stories and tools that we can use to connect deeper with ourselves and each other. I will be here with you every single step of this expedition because I believe that there's something more true that lives on the other side of understanding and exploring your emotions with curiosity, and that is truth. Your truth, my truth, and our healing. Each week, I'll leave you with a poem or a quote to ponder on, and this week's poem is called The Guest House, and The Guest House was written by Rumi, written in the 13th century. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, 
a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices Amplified.